And so in the first of these servant songs in Isaiah, we read in verse 6 that there is one who will be given as a covenant for the people. And in our brief time, that is what I want us to focus on. That phrase in Isaiah 42, verse 6, I will give you, speaking of Christ, as a covenant for the people. There's no doubt that this servant of the Lord being given as a covenant for the people is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew quotes verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 42 and declares that the prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Now, when we bring up this word covenant, we enter into some of the deepest parts of the theological ocean, as it were. In Reformed Christianity, the term covenant is a key term, because in the Bible it is a key term. More specifically, our brothers on the Pado-Baptist side of the aisle, if you will, Reformed Pado-Baptists will often make reference to the covenant when making arguments for the practice of infant baptism. For example, a 2003 book in support of infant baptism was titled The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. Now, the argument, and this is a, a bit of a, a deep theological introduction to the sermon, I understand that, but the argument for covenantal infant baptism hinges on the assertion that the old covenant and the new covenant are of the same substance, merely being two different administrations of one overarching covenant of grace. Now, in terms of covenant theology, the Reformed Baptist understanding differs from the Pado-Baptist view precisely on this point. What is the new covenant, and how does it relate to the old covenant? Now, to fully unpack that would require multiple sermons, and that's not my intent here. But by way of Isaiah 42, verse 6, I would like to draw your attention to at least part of the doctrine of the covenant. I want to draw your attention to the sum and the substance, the core and the heart of the covenant of grace, namely Jesus Christ. You see, Isaiah says that Jesus Christ will be given as a covenant. What covenant is this of which Isaiah speaks? It is the covenant, central in Scripture, promised in the Garden of Eden, foretold by the prophets, pointed to by the Old Covenant, and fulfilled and executed by Christ and ratified by his blood shed on the cross. This is the great covenant in Scripture that involves the Father's electing love, the Son's work of redemption, and the Spirit's application of all blessings in Christ to all the members of this covenant. The question I want you to consider today is, are you in this covenant with Christ? This is the great covenant in Scripture. The New Testament describes it as the new covenant, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, or the better covenant, Hebrews 7, 22. Reform, Reformed theologians often refer to this by a term that is not found directly in Scripture, the covenant of grace. Now, what is a covenant? In Scripture, the word is sometimes used interchangeably with the phrase oath or promise, but a fuller definition includes the concept of an arrangement made by God with requirements and terms. Listen to how the London Baptist Confession, actually this is the catechism, the Baptist Catechism, Listen to how it answers this question regarding God rescuing mankind from the estate of sin and misery he fell into. This is question uh, 98 and the answer in the Baptist Catechism. God having out of his mere good pleasure 
from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did, did, did enter, excuse me, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. In other words, the covenant of grace is the arrangement made within the Godhead to deliver the elect out of their estate of sin and misery. Benjamin Keach also said, I quoted him earlier, he said, this covenant, this covenant is the only city of refuge for a distressed soul. My friends, Christ is the covenant. I have four very brief points of doctrine this afternoon. If you're a note taker, you can jot these down. I will repeat them as we go. Four reasons why Jesus Christ can be said to be the covenant. Number one, Christ is the promise of the covenant. Number two, Christ is the sacrifice of the covenant. Number three, Christ is the guarantor of the covenant. And number four, Christ is the reward of the covenant. I will repeat those as we go. And the list could go on and on. But for the sake of time, we will limit it to four. And let's dig into them right now. Number one, Christ is the promise of the new covenant. How can Isaiah say that God will give Christ as the covenant? Christ can be referred to as the covenant itself because he is the promise of the covenant. To understand the covenant and the blood of Christ, we must understand what is sometimes referred to as the covenant of works. And I understand this is a, a bit of a theological introduction. Some of you are very familiar with this. Others of you may not be. But the covenant of works is that arrangement God made with Adam in the garden. In the beginning, God created man and wrote his law on man's heart and held forth eternal life on the condition of obedience to that law. The arrangement could be summarized as follows. Do this and live. The Baptist Confession of Faith puts it like this. Quote, God created man upright and perfect, gave him a righteous law, which had been unto him life had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof. Okay, this is the covenant of works. Man's in the garden. Obey this, and you will have blessing. If you've read the first two chapters of the Bible, which I trust you have, you know that Adam and Eve with him broke that covenant and thus plunged all of mankind into sin and misery. In the words of the New England primer, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And more importantly, the Bible says that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, Romans chapter 5. So this covenant of works that God made in the beginning, which demands our obedience to the law of God, leaves us condemned, lost, and guilty. This is what is known in Christian theology as the fall. And in case you doubt your connection to the fall, or if you doubt the reality of it, as, uh, or your connection to Adam as his heir, I simply ask you to consider if you have kept God's law in your own life. Have you broken any of the Ten Commandments? Have you used God's name in vain? Stolen? Borne false witness against your neighbor? Lusted? Have you loved God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength? Again, this is God's law, not man's law. This is the standard by which you will be judged. If we are honest, we will be forced to admit that we have sinned and thus we stand with Adam under the just condemnation that our sins deserve. The wages of sin is death. The fall of Adam 
who is our covenantal head, was a serious problem. It brought sin and death to the world. And the Bible says, death spread to all men because all sinned. Every problem you see today, every broken marriage, every abuse, every abortion, is a covenantal problem that goes back to our federal head, Adam, in the garden. In Adam's fall, we truly did sin all. However, immediately after man broke the covenant in the garden, God promised something else. He promised someone else. He promised another covenantal head. This promise was communicated to Adam and Eve almost immediately after the fall in what Spurgeon called the first gospel sermon that was ever delivered upon the surface of this earth. That sermon is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and I'm sure you know it very well, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. That gospel sermon, that good news was the promise of the covenant, and it could be summed up as the promise that the seed of the woman would defeat the seed of the serpent, would defeat Satan. That son of Eve is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is promised in the first promise of the covenant, Genesis chapter 3. The London Baptist Confession of Faith affirms this understanding when it states, quote, this covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of a woman. In a word, Christ is what was promised, starting in the garden. This is why the Bible says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. This is why Zechariah could say that the coming Christ was the fulfillment of the mercy promised to our fathers and the fulfillment of the oath that he swore to our father Jacob. It's in Luke chapter 1. And in Acts 3, 25, Peter could refer to Jesus' death and resurrection as the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, namely, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And this is why Paul could say in Acts 13, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. <clears throat> the fulfillment of that promised covenant did not occur until the cross of Christ. Christ was promised in the Old Testament, but the covenant was not yet cut. This is an important distinction between the Reformed Baptist view and the Reformed Pado-Baptist view, perhaps. In the words of Owen, this covenant lacked its solemn confirmation and establishment by the blood of the only sacrifice which belonged to it. The covenant was promised in Old Testament times. Christ had not yet come. However, this does not mean people were not saved in Old Testament times. It simply means they were saved by virtue of the promised Christ. This is what Romans chapter 3 teaches, that God overlooked their sins as they looked to the propitiation, the coming propitiation in Jesus Christ. So for the first point, Christ can be said to be the covenant in Isaiah chapter 42 verse 6 because he is the one who is promised in this covenant. All the promises in the Old Testament, all the promises of this new covenant that would take away sin, that would reverse the curse, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Without Christ, there is no covenant. So Christ can be said to be the covenant because he is the promise of the covenant in the Old Testament. 
Number two, Christ is the sacrifice of the covenant. Christ can be referred to as the covenant itself because he is the sacrifice of this covenant. Prior to his death in Matthew 26, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, our Lord said this, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' blood is the blood of the covenant. This covenant is not cut over and over and over again. It is cut once. It is not a covenant with multiple sacrifices. There is one sacrifice in this covenant, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Listen to, listen to how Hebrews 10 verse 14 refers to the sacrifice of this covenant. Hebrews 10 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And again, Hebrews 9 26 Speaking again of the sacrifice of the new covenant or the covenant of grace, the author says, quote, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ can be spoken of as the covenant because he is the one and only offering, the only sacrifice of the covenant. You see, the old covenant, or what we might call the, the Sinaitic covenant, the covenant given at Mount Sinai, pointed to Christ. It pointed to the covenant of grace, but it was not that covenant. And this is where Reformed Baptists diverge from Reformed Pado Baptists. The old covenant was not the covenant of grace. The sacrifices of the old covenant were myriad, and none of them took away sin. That covenant served an important purpose for a time, the old covenant, but it was only to be in place until Christ came and executed the promised covenant of grace. This is what Paul means in Galatians 3, where he references or he refers to the Old Covenant with the phrase, the law. Listen to how Paul speaks in Galatians 3.19. And when he says the law, he's speaking here, I believe, of the Old Covenant. And to make that case, I'd have to unpack Galatians 3. But listen to what he says. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The law, the old covenant, was added because of transgressions, and it was only to be put in place until Christ came, until the offspring should come. The offspring of who? Abraham. Who is the seed of Abraham to whom Paul speaks? It is none other than Jesus Christ. That is whom the promise was made to, that in your descendants all the earth will be blessed. That promise to Abraham was ultimately made to Jesus Christ, that he is the one who will fulfill that promise. At the heart of the covenant in Scripture is the forgiveness of our sins, that our sins would be washed away, that we would be declared righteous, that the righteousness of Christ would be imputed to us. And the forgiveness of sins is based on one thing and one thing alone, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If you are not in this covenant, your sins are not forgiven. Only the sacrifice of Christ can take away sins. The old covenant could not take away sins. It could only point to the one who is coming who could. And so it is proper to Christ as the covenant because he and he alone is the only sacrifice that can take away sin. His sacrifice is the only sacrifice of the covenant. The new covenant, the covenant of grace. The number three We've talked about how Christ is the promise of the covenant. Christ is the sacrifice of the covenant. Number three, Christ is the guarantor of the covenant. 
Christ can be referred to as the covenant. Right? Isaiah says, I give my servant as a covenant to the people. Christ can be referred to as the covenant because he is the one who guarantees the members of this covenant, the elect, will receive the benefits of this covenant. The covenant in the blood of Christ is said to be a better covenant than the old covenant. Again, Hebrews 8, 6. But as it is, the Bible says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, why is the new covenant better than the old covenant? Well, we could note several things, but the most fundamental issue is that the old covenant could not save. That is why the Apostle Paul referred to the old covenant as a ministry of condemnation in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 9. I want you to listen. This is my final in-depth quote here from John Owen. I want you to see how he explained the old covenant. All right, again, this is the covenant made at Mount Sinai with Moses, where the law is re-given. The law wasn't first given at Mount Sinai. The confession, the Bible teaches us it was given in the garden. It was written on man's heart. It is a reflection of God's character. But the law is given, it's renewed, if you will, at Sinai with these blessings and curses to the people. Listen to what Owen wrote about this old covenant and understand that the old covenant could not save, it could not take away sin. This covenant thus made with these ends and promises did never save nor condemn any man eternally. All that lived under the administration of it did attain eternal life or perished forever, but not by virtue of this covenant as formerly such. It did indeed revive the commanding power and sanction of the first covenant of works, and in that respect, as the apostle speaks, was the ministry of condemnation. Now, what, what Owen is saying there is that the old covenant, it did not save, it did not condemn. If you were saved in the old covenant times, it was because you were trusting in the coming Christ. If you were condemned in old covenant times, it was because you did not trust in that coming Christ and you were judged for your sin. The old covenant could not save, and that's why Hebrews contrasts the old covenant so powerfully with the new covenant in the blood of Christ. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. But he, referring to Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In the new covenant, my friends, Jesus Christ loses none whom he represents. You could, be, you could have been in the old covenant, but not trusted in the Christ that was coming and be damned eternally. But if you are in the covenant in Christ's blood, you are guaranteed to be saved because your sins have been forgiven and Christ will not only keep you eternally, he will keep you from sin in this life. He will sanctify you. He will discipline you. You will grow in holiness. Christ can be said to be the covenant because he's the guarantor of this covenant. He is the one who guarantees that every member who is in this covenant, all the elect will be saved. Christ loses none of his for whom he died. He is the guarantor of a better covenant that guarantees salvation. Well, number four, and very briefly, Christ can be referred to as the covenant itself because he is the great reward of this covenant. So Christ is the promise of the covenant. Christ is the sacrifice of the covenant. He's the guarantor of the covenant. 
and he is the reward of the covenant. There is nothing greater for which we could ask than to have Christ. As Paul said, to live is Christ. There is no greater reward than to have Christ, to know him. On the cross, Jesus said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. What is paradise without Christ but hell itself? Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the reward of this covenant that he has made, that he has guaranteed to save his elect. If you are in this covenant, you have Christ. And there is no greater reward on earth or in heaven than to have Jesus Christ. So Christ is the reward of this covenant. To live is Christ. Well, I promised I'd keep this brief. There's much more we could say here. But I want to conclude by turning to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. I encourage you to turn there. And we'll conclude this message with a brief word from Hebrews. Isaiah, in Isaiah 42, says, This coming Christ, this coming servant of the Lord, he is the covenant that will be given for the people. Isaiah never saw it. He only saw it afar off. Hebrews chapter 11, we have the great hall of faith, a passage many are familiar with. In verse 37, we read this fascinating, if somewhat morbid, line. In verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Now I'm going to tie this in to Isaiah in a moment here. Uh, that passage has always struck me. It's, it's a, a powerful passage. Perhaps the most striking phrase in that section speaks of those faithful servants of God who were sawn in two. To be cut in half while still alive, does not seem like a pleasant way to die. Now, the Bible does not tell us who exactly suffered this fate, but a tradition arose that points to at least one prophet who may have met his death by a saw blade. Both Justin, uh, the martyr, and Origen of Alexandria seem to have believed this traditional account of a prophet cut in half, not just by any saw, but a wooden saw. Now, there's a story that comes from, it's a non-biblical book, I stress that. It's not scripture, but it tells us that this prophet was Isaiah, who met his death by saw, by a saw, a wooden saw. Now, according to this non-canonical work, the prophet Isaiah foretells his own death by prophesying that King Hezekiah's wicked son, Manasseh, will reject his father's ways and torture and kill Isaiah. Now, we know from the Bible that Manasseh followed Hezekiah, but we also know that Manasseh was one of the most godless and evil kings in Israel's history. The Bible tells us that Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. We also read in the Bible that Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. In fact, so evil was Manasseh, and so pervasive was the iniquity that he spread, that he is often referenced as the reason for the judgment on Israel. God's bringing judgment because of the blood that Manasseh shed. And we know that from Scripture, but the Bible is silent on Isaiah's death. But the non-biblical work posits this tradition that Manasseh, this wicked, wicked king, teamed up with a demonic servant of Satan and chased Isaiah and other prophets deep into the mountains of Bethlehem. Now, in the story, uh, this servant of Satan has a particular hatred for Isaiah because of the prophecies Isaiah made about the coming Christ. Now, in the story, Manasseh sends out a search party 
to track down Isaiah in the, in the mountains. When they find him, Manasseh has him tied up inside a sack. He puts that sack in the hollow of a cedar tree, and then he proceeds to saw the tree in half with a large wooden saw, sawing Isaiah in half in the process. Well, it's an interesting story for sure, uh, but in the end, we don't even know if Isaiah was martyred, let alone the manner of his martyrdom. But we do know this. Isaiah was a man who looked to Christ, even in the face of death. He looked beyond his time, beyond his death, which he knew was sure to come before the fulfillment of his prophecies. And I don't think it's a stretch to, to at least infer that perhaps Isaiah was martyred and he suffered a violent death at the hands of wicked men. But in his life, he looked beyond his own time, and he beheld Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament saints did the same. The covenant was only promised to them. They did not have it. Look at Isaiah, or Hebrews 11, excuse me, Hebrews 11, the end of the chapter. It talks about those who were tortured, those who were sawn in two, those who were mocked, those who were beaten, those who were stoned, those who were slain with the sword. And on it goes, read the Hall of Faith, but verse 39, and these all, and Isaiah is included in this, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Isaiah only had the covenant promised. He only had Christ promised. We have it fulfilled. We have Christ. We have this one of whom Isaiah spoke. The covenant itself. He came he laid down his life for sinners and he rose again. Do you love this Christ? Are you in covenant with him? Have your sins been washed away? Have you turned from your sins and trusted in this Christ? And, trust, and trusted in the Christ of the covenant. It has been said that men do not make this covenant. We don't make a covenant with God. The covenant is made in the blood of Christ. We only lay hold of it by faith. And so I hope you have been encouraged by this briefest of introductions, if you will, to this covenant theology, this topic, that Christ is the covenant. Lay hold of the covenant. Lay hold of Christ by faith. He's the only one who can take away sins. He's the only one who can guarantee your salvation. Christ is the covenant. And I call on each and every one here and anyone listening to lay hold of this covenant and believe on him for eternal life. Isaiah could only see it in the distance. We have it now before us. Lay hold of Christ and rejoice that your sins are forgiven.